we take up what we considered uh, last time, last week, um, this first sign that Jesus enacted um, in his ministry. Um, in ver at the end of verse 3, they want wine or they have no wine. Um, and then in verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. Now we have seen as we've developed um, our understanding of this gospel and that it's structured around uh, seven signs that the Apostle John is showing uh, that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, that he is divine, that he is the eternal God. The Son being fully revealed for the first time uh, in his incarnation and ministry. Um, and that in that ministry, he reveals the glory of God. Uh, we saw that in uh, chapter uh, 1. Um, we beheld his glory, verse 14. We beheld his glory. God's glory had been seen in various ways before, but there's something distinct and special and clear and discernible about it when it's in the face and ministry of his Son, who is the one who reveals God anyway. That's in verse 18. Each of us wants to know God. Well, John says to us, no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That word declared is the word exegete or exegesis. Uh, when we read God's word and when we expound it and preach upon it, we exegete the word to make it clearer that we might see and know its full meaning. Well, John is using that on purpose here and telling us that though Moses did glorious things by God's power and God was present with his old covenant people, this is different. He has come down in the flesh and he's exegeting God. He's revealing the true sight and meaning and attributes and work of God in a very clear way. So Jesus, as the Son of God, is revealing the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the glory of his person and the glory of his work, his person as divine, as the second person of the Trinity, as God of very God, and his work of redemption revealed in these seven signs. John chooses them specifically to add to all the signs that Matthew, Mark, and Luke list and record for us he chooses these specifically to really give detail to and bring home in a vivid way seven very special things about the way that God works in the gospel. So his person and work for you as a believer or as one who is seeking the Lord in some way or thinking about the Lord or you children who are hearing these things from the church and from your parents the call from this gospel is to believe and be born again. And you do that by reading this gospel, this book. 
And God tells us here that if you do that, children, if the Spirit blesses that, you will see the glory and work of Jesus Christ and understand it. So is glory and work. Last week we saw the scene and the dilemma that comes uh, in this scene. Uh, the scene basically is that Jesus chooses a wedding, I think for prophetic reasons, to bring his first sign of his glory and ministry uh, here. John remembers it vividly. The other Gospels don't go anywhere near these events. Uh, they mainly focus on the, the baptism of Christ, but then leap to the beheading of John the Baptist and the year of popularity of Christ's ministry in Galilee. John remembers these intimate scenes at the beginning and wants the reader to know something even more about Jesus. And he began the whole thing at a wedding because he is coming to marry his people. Jehovah marries Israel. Jehovah is the bridegroom. Israel is the bride. Jehovah is still the bridegroom today. And the Jew and Gentile who will come to Christ are the bride of Christ, the church of the living God, the church of Jesus Christ. So he chooses this purposefully. And the dilemma, you know, just from history and the gospel, that they come and they run out of wine at this wedding. There's a misjudgment of some kind. There may have been more guests than predicted. And I told you that this was not just an embarrassment, but you could be sued um, and lose your whole reputation, and it could destroy your relationships between families and these things in Jewish culture if you ran out of wine. Weddings were very important in Israel. Weddings should still be important, but they were very important then, and wine was very important. The Jews drank wine at every Passover from a royal cup. They ate the bitter herbs and the lamb. They, they ate bread. Uh, without leaven, the, the meanness of parts of the meal showed their, their poverty and simplicity in the wilderness. But for the Jew, they always have the royal cup. They still do today. They take great pride in it, for they see themselves as royalty. Why? They are God's son, covenantally. They are God's children. They were brought through the wilderness and redeemed to be a royal priesthood outwardly. That's what the church is today. When we have communion in this place, remember, the cup is many things. It is a royal cup. It is the cup of the king. Wine is important. It shows God's blessing upon Israel. When there's lots of wine, it means God has sent rain and blessed the land and their economy. It shows that they don't just have water and bread and what's necessary, but they have gifts and blessings and abundance. You can survive on water and bread, but if you have wine, your vineyards are well, you are at peace with your neighboring nations, and you have the time to cultivate the finer and blessed things of life. Wine is a symbol of all of that to the Jew. Wine is in the wedding, that the marriage would be rich, that it would be an Israelite marriage, that the couple would be blessed and holy and that they would be blessed by Jehovah. And the wine is a symbol of all of that. It was very important. And to run out of wine meant lots of things about your preparation for the wedding and <clears throat> how much you'd invested in the important things and so on. 
and it could be a great offence and, uh, like I said, it was actually illegal. You, you, you could be fined and prosecuted for this. Jesus sees that need. His mother sees that need, and we saw that he rebuked her uh, for intruding upon his sovereignty and thinking that as Messiah he could act now according to her uh, nudging and suggestion, and he had to teach her that he was the master, she the disciple. And rather than mother and son, she must recognize that now it's Lord and subject, that it's sinner and savior, that it's subject and king, not mother and son. And that's where we left things last time. We now turn to the sign itself. In verse 6, there were six water pots of stone. According to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing, the King James says, firkins of wine. These contained about 20 or 30 gallons of wine each. And there are, there are six of them. These are very large stone water pots. And we're told here that they were for purification. That's why they're at the wedding. They, some of them may have been borrowed because there was a purification rite for the married couple to enter marriage pure and so on. I think I mentioned last time that there was even a belief in the Jews that you kind of experienced a cleansing of sin as you entered marriage. Um, that's obviously not true, um, but they viewed it that way, the purity of the sacred union. It's the idea of sanctity. We still retain that. We believe it is a sacred union, but it doesn't cleanse you from sin in any special uh, way. But they had these pots for that kind of thing, these large vessels. But they would have been there for other reasons too. I'm sure we all know how important cleansing and uncleanness was in God's covenant. There were lots of things that could make you unclean. If you touched or went near a leper, for example, or if there was bodily discharge of some kind, or blood, if there was sickness of some kind that was unclean, or if you had to handle a dead body or were near a dead body, or had attended a funeral, things like this. There were... Other things that if you fell into sin, there were all of these washings that had to occur or sacrifices you had to give. Now, you could do that locally. You didn't go down to Jerusalem every time you wanted to um, be forgiven of sin. Uh, You could give an offering to the local priests or Levites. Uh, You can pay for a certain amount to acquire these sacrifices. And the sacrifice would be made on your behalf by the hundreds of thousands of priests that attended at the temple all the year round. But there were washings you had to undergo too. You'd be unclean until you did the ceremonial washing. And God did that. He gave that to the people um, that he might emphasize to them uh, what sin is like, that sin is very real. It's present every day. It happens all of the time. Um, And that it doesn't just go away. Uh, We may sit here and raise ourselves up over the Jew or the Hindu or the Muslim, and say, oh, the Muslim washes this, and the Hindus want to make sure their food is clean and so on, or the Jews with all their washings and their keeping of the Sabbath and their superstition about whether their car becomes unclean and so on. Well, 
uh, there, wa uh, there was a day I would join myself, maybe in the Puritan days or days that were better for the church and say, oh, look what they're doing. Look how legalistic and outward it is. But one thing that can be said of all these people is they know you can become unclean. Uh, the, the evangelical church today in the Western world, in this nation, for example, even the Reformed church theorizes sin in its mind and is all technical and will debate original sin. But you, you can go into the, even the average Reformed church and there isn't an act of seriousness that you have contaminated yourself this morning um, or come into this place contaminated or might leave this place contaminated, even having been offered the gospel and shown the grace of Christ again. Uh, there is great strength in Jesus' new covenant ministry that we worship in spirit and truth and not in a physical temple, that we don't physically wash. There's great strength in that if the people who are receiving it are deep enough to keep before their minds all of the time the invisible thing that's true. But the problem with our developing and reoccurring blindnesses is that sometimes even the Jew is more aware in a certain way, of sin, than even a Christian. Uh, they might not fully understand all of the implications or how to deal with that sin, but they know it's there. They know you can be unclean. You come to me or I come to you in the Reformed Church and say, you have sinned, you have become unclean. How dare you say that to me? I'm not unclean. I was washed in the, baptized by the Holy Spirit. I'm... This old covenant showed them that you sin every day. You sin in your house. You sin in your bed. You sin when you walk, when you think. You sin a lot. We might think of them as lesser sins than extremely controversial sins. But we sin. <clears throat> the old covenant was given as a gift to Israel to show them that. You sinned and you had to cleanse. Blood needed to be spilled from a pigeon or an ox or a goat in all of these sacrifices. And the priests had to take the animal in and someone needed slaughtered for that sin. Do, do you as a Reformed Christian believe that when you sin? Do you think of that? Someone needed slaughtered for that sin? That word, that thought, that shallowness, that stupidity, that foolishness, that levity, that unclean thought. Someone needs slaughtered for that sin because the wages of sin is death. The Jew knew that. The priests go in. And the animal isn't just offered, it needs cut up, its organs need taken out. You're seeing inside the animal, you're seeing the ugliness, you're seeing the consequences of sin. The, um, the animal needs taken apart. That's what happens to us at death, that there is a consequence of sin, that when we die in our sin, our soul is <clears throat> torn from our body. Yeah, and there it is laid, and the soul is dealt with by God, and and the body rots. There's really strong consequences for being a sinner. And let us not in the Reformed Church forget these things because God has given us a gift of being more spiritual. Well, we take that gift, but with great power comes great responsibility that we don't lose the sense of just how real these things are. Well, the Jews had their pots for their misunderstanding of marriage to wash the bride and groom, um, but also their concern for old covenant things, that the Jew was daily becoming stained. And there's the idea of washing. Now, you know what happened. The scribes and Pharisees took this principle that God gave them, <clears throat> and they ran with it and developed it. And it enveloped 
the whole life of the people. The rabbinic manuals at this time, just on washing, the, the main manual for it was a thousand, at least a thousand pages long as part of the Jewish development of documents that became the Talmud. They still have it today. All rabbis debating their whole lives about what is clean, what is unclean, what do you do if you touch this, what about this object, anything you can think of. They had developed an opinion about whether it made you unclean and what you had to do to address it. Now, you can imagine what this does to the people. Jesus actually attacked it when he took his disciples to Pharisees' houses. He specifically told them not to wash their hands ceremonially before the meal because it wasn't commanded by God. It wasn't part of the sacrifice system. It wasn't to do with leprosy or, or death or something legitimate. It was all kinds of things that could have made you unclean. It wasn't that you had become unclean. You have to wash your hands religiously before you touch anything on the table in case you're contaminated, in case you're unclean. Jesus blasts the Pharisees in Matthew 23 for how out of hand this developed theology had become. He says, you wash pots and utensils and and tongs and cups and bowls and couches and everything in your house. And he says, but you're unclean in your heart. You remember his famous words, make the inside of the dish clean. Then it will be clean on the outside. But they were focused on all of these things. And they thought, and this is the problem with it, I'm well with God. So the Pharisee comes in, he washes his hands, he takes the best place at the table, he's in his Pharisaic garments, they sit and discuss the law, they discuss the Gentiles, they discuss sinful people, and all the cups at his table have been washed. Usually they were made of gold and other precious metals. And he's sitting there going, I'm clean. And then he goes up to the temple and he says, Lord, I thank you that you've given us these things, that we don't need to be unclean. I'm not like this prostitute and tax collector. I tithe, I mint cumin and dill. I fast twice a week. I wash everything. I've come into your presence because I know and I love you. And I, I, I look all around me and see these people that, that they're blind to what you've really given. Now, what does Jesus say? He was blind. He's, interestingly, when that Pharisee prayed in Jesus' parable, Jesus tells you and I something very instructive. He prayed thus unto himself. Have you ever heard someone praying unto themselves? I have. I think I've done it. Praying unto yourself. Someone asks you to pray. Out comes the reformed evangelical language. Ever blessed God, holy one, righteous one, a God of love, while you're not loving your brother. You pray unto yourself. And we even may say, we thank you that you've given us so much and that yes, we, we have some sin, but we're not so sinful. And we pray for all those ones on the outside that are covered with sin and controversial sin. Let us be careful that as Jesus comes to these six water pots and we look at Jews washing their hands and so on, let us make sure that we know that it's the heart that needs washed, not the body of a bride or groom, not our hands, 
It's not leprosy and blood and bodily discharge necessarily that fundamentally makes us unclean. It's our hearts that make us unclean. We just reckon with that and accept it as Reformed Christians. We need to just embrace that thought without resistance. Our hearts, by nature, are unclean. Jesus told those Pharisees at that meal, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of him. And his disciples said, what do you mean? The Pharisees would strain the gnat and sieve when they drank because the gnat would make you unclean. They would strain it because you can't drink anything that's going to make you unclean. And the disciples might have thought it was a bit ridiculous, but when Jesus says, well, it's not outward things that make you unclean, they thought, well, some of these things make us unclean. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. It's all coming out of your heart. That's what makes you unclean. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but the things which come out of a man defile him. For out of the heart of man proceed. Now do you or I have these? Evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, the evil eye, and pride. Now Jesus had none of these. It's remarkable to know of any man that doesn't have them because they're almost synonymous with human nature now. He had none of them, but he saw them all the time in his father and mother, his brothers and sisters, his community, his disciples, and everyone that he looked upon with pity who came to him. He knew what was in them. He saw the woman of Samaria. He knew that adultery had come from her heart, and he's there to remedy it and save and atone and and wash and cleanse, but not by outward washing. The heart... Out of the heart of man come these things. Now these come out of my heart and yours. No matter how many years we've been following Christ. Sometimes it's predictable. Sometimes it's quite surprising. What will just come out of a human heart? It's there, friend. It's diseased. We got it in the fall. Contaminated with the guilt and the presence of sin in us. We're born with it. We're conceived in it. When that first cell splits into two, it's contaminated. It has a spiritual substance in it. When that body grows and the child comes forth from the womb, it is human. And it came from Adam and Eve. And it is a sinner. You and I are sinners. And Old Testament rituals and cleansings will not cleanse our hearts. Animal sacrifices will not cleanse our hearts. Psalm singing won't cleanse us. Uh, doctrine, considered by itself, having a correct system won't save us, even, uh, cleanse us. Even prayer by itself doesn't cleanse us. The only thing that cleanses us is the sacrifice and blood of Jesus Christ and the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit in the soul. None of these things that we do and that we know, and that God has given us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And all the things we do, our communions and our baptisms, 
that are full of meaning and if handled correctly are spiritual actions. They're not just outward. The communion and baptism is not just outward. It must carry with it a spiritual action. But doing the thing itself with a heart unmoved and not seeking Christ and not seeing oneself and so on, the doing of the thing will not cleanse. Only by faith in Christ and the transmission of his righteousness to you and the washing, Paul calls it to Titus, of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's what cleanses this fountain of pollution. The Holy Spirit washes the heart. He does it at conversion. There's a kind of wide washing at conversion that Paul refers to there. The washing of regeneration. It happens at conversion. But it doesn't kill all the sin. It doesn't uproot it all. It's a wide washing that, that turns the heart affections and will that hated God, that walked away from God and turns unto him in attraction and affection and unites you to Jesus Christ. So there's an initial washing, but out, kind of like a wound that's been cleansed. You're in the hospital, the wound is cleansed, it's sewed up, but then you're at home for two weeks and then you see an infection develops. Even though the wound was cleansed, we still have an infection. We're justified, we're righteous, but we still have an infection. It's not our master, we're not its slave, or we shouldn't be, but it's still there. And it's only by the continual action of the Holy Spirit, it's only by seeing the sin on the day or whenever it becomes clear to us that it occurs, and it's it's repented of, it's seen for the obnoxious thing it is, It's being disgusted with it and it's saying, no, this is not what I want for me in Christ. And I turn from it and I seek his forgiveness and I I purpose to not return to it because I don't love it. I love him. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Wash thou me and then I shall be whiter than the snow. All mine iniquities blot out. Thy face hide from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, Lord, a right spirit, me within. Heart, not sacrifice outward, not ordinances, heart. That's what David needed. Deep washing. This was not the prevailing view at the time. Jesus chooses this wedding on purpose as the coming bridegroom Messiah. And his first miracle is not to heal a body. It's to take what's there for the cleansing of sin and to fill it with water that could never cleanse the body and to show forth his transforming power his new covenant grace and sacrifice, his great work of reconciliation as the Lamb of God and the King of Israel, who would not rout the Romans, but deal with sin, and the issuing forth from that work would come the wine and the liberty of the year of Jubilee, the celebration of the gospel, the day of the Lord's salvation, 
the marriage of Messiah to his people, who he would truly be betrothed to, washed. Not an outward symbol at that wedding, but a Messiah who would truly wash his bride. And as Paul says, present her spotless and without blemish on that last great day. Jesus decides to do this as a, at a wedding because he's doing this for his people. And what was futile in these washings, what was futile in adding all these regulations and stifling the people that taught them of their sin, that it was futile to clean them, that he, as Messiah, could clean them as their priest and king. And that out of that, rather than the labor and the work of washing, out of it would come the wine of the blessing of the gospel. Now, that's why he's focused on these pots. And then he says to the servants, fill these with water. Verse 7, they filled them to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and bring it to the master, the governor of the feast. And they took it. And when it was brought to that master of the feast, he tasted it, which was his job to do. And he startled because when he thought they had, when he thought that they had already consumed the, you know, the, the good wine, that they would be bringing out inferior wine as the week went on, he startled because the wine he tastes is greater than even the wine that they brought out at the start of the feast, which was the good wine. Jesus doesn't touch the water pots. He Servants fill them. He doesn't touch the water. He doesn't go with procession unto the master of the feast with his hand on the cup, transforming it into wine. At some point in the pots, and in the drawing out of vessels being brought to the master of the feast, this water becomes wine. Even John doesn't say, and then the water became wine. He doesn't even, John doesn't know how it happened. All he says is, when the man tasted what John knows was originally water, it, it had been made wine. Jesus done, does this from the glory of his sonship. As God incarnate, as Jehovah, as the one who brings forth the fruit of the vine and the bread of the earth, naturally, Jesus brings aged wine immediately. Royal wine, messianic wine, gospel blessing wine. So Jesus does this. What does that sign mean as it is a, a response to the water pots um, of their current religion? As Mary said to him, they have no wine. She just meant that naturally. There's no wine, she says, but I think when John quotes her, John sees an irony and is he's commenting on all that's going to come in this gospel. He's saying they have no wine. All they have are these pots 
and this water. They have no joy. They have no Messiah. They have no power of the Holy Spirit. They have no gospel. All they have are these regulations to wash themselves all day, every day, and it doesn't do anything. They have to keep doing it. They have no wine. They have no gospel joy. What does the sign mean? Well, when Jesus produces this wine and gives it in this first sign, manifesting his glory, then the act, the transformation and the wine must have something to say about his glory and his work. The first thing it signifies is that the old order that I just described to you there in detail was giving way to the new. Christ turns water here, symbolizing all the washings of the old covenant and all the additions, a ministry of condemnation that emphasized sin and law and the futility of cleansing ourselves. He turns that old water into the wine of Messiah and the kingdom of God. So he's announcing a kingdom. Messiah was thought to bring blessing and joy. The, the, the voice of the joy of the bridegroom and the bride and the blessedness of Israel, he brings it. And the old is giving way to the new because Christ here takes water and turns it into wine as his first miraculous act in his ministry. Uh, when Moses was delivering the old redemption from Egypt, uh, the first act that he was to do in the, the plagues of Egypt was he turned the water into blood. Now, John, Jesus certainly may have intended that himself, but John certainly, in opening his gospel, is drawing attention to that. Uh, you'll remember how how prevalent the exodus and the old economy are in John's writing. I pointed that out in one of the sermons. He is the word of creation. He begins his ministry at a wedding. Genesis 2 begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve. The word becomes flesh and tabernacles among them, just as God did in the exodus. Um, they beheld his glory, just as Moses beheld his glory in the tabernacle. He brings down manna from heaven, Jesus multiplies bread from his own authority, not bringing it down from heaven, but from himself. Moses raised his staff and the Red Sea was parted. Jesus walks on the water to his disciples and saves them. He doesn't raise a staff and split the sea. He walks on the sea. He is its Lord and Master. Here, as Moses had to emphasize judgment on Egypt, and let Israel see that judgment even in her salvation, the emphasis of law and sin, and that to be pagan, to worship the wrong God, to refuse his covenant, brings blood upon your water supply or the Nile God in Egypt, and the lice and the frogs and everything come, and, and it culminates in a great darkness where all the firstborn die. All of that's fulfilled in Christ. And just as Moses, Pharaoh wouldn't heed Moses, and he raised his staff, and the source of all life in Egypt was turned to the blood of the judgment of God, Jesus comes to sinners here in Israel. Sinners that deserve the same judgment, and he doesn't raise his staff. 
from his own will, from his own heart and soul and authority, he turns the water that shows us we need cleansed, he turns it into wine, not blood. Um, we do deserve blood, as I said earlier. Sin must be slaughtered. We do deserve blood. We deserve that water in Egypt. America deserves it. That sinner deserves it. It's what we judicially deserve. Not for God to pass over our sin and give us a lamb in our house, but we deserve the judgments of Egypt. We deserve the water to be turned blood. Now, Jesus turns it to wine here. It doesn't mean he doesn't judge. It means there's a day of salvation, and it's now, and he's willing to give wine unto all eternity for anyone who turns to him. It doesn't mean he doesn't judge. I'm not saying Moses turned it to blood. Christ will never do that. He turns it to wine right now. Uh, it was turned to blood. The water will turn to blood for you. The water of cleansing will turn to blood for you. It will either happen as it comes into the Nile and judges the whole world on the last day, or it will be turned to blood on the cross. My point is, Jesus isn't someone who doesn't turn it into blood. The glory of God is that he was willing to judge Egypt, and then he was willing to judge his son. So it has to turn to blood. The blood must come. Sin results in blood. Now, the question for you as a man, a woman with a soul, a child, is where will the blood come? Will it come at the end when he comes in glory and stops time? And there is no chance to grab things from your house or to get down from your rooftop and the person next to you is taken or two are grinding at the mill and one's taken and it's sudden and there is no recourse, there is no discussion when Jesus comes in the glory of his mighty angels to bring the full effects of the breaches of covenant and law. He treads the winepress of his wrath, Revelation says, and the wine will be made and the blood will come. The wine of his wrath. Will, will it come there? Will the blood come there for you? And it will come. If you die today outside of Christ, you, your judicial case is transmitted immediately and it will be dealt with on the last day and it will not change. The death will come. Hell will come. But there's another place that blood can be spilled and has been spilled at the cross. When it came from his side, blood and water, to justify the sinner, to cleanse the sinner. It's John that noticed it and wrote about it at the end of his gospel. I testify, he says, as one who has seen this. Blood and water came from his side. Crown of thorns piercing the head. Physical blood coming. Physical pain. Back torn. Struck with rods. Mocked. Punched. Beaten to a pulp. But more so. 
in being nailed to the cross. Physical sufferings become minimal as his soul plunges into the wrath of his Father. The full anger of God, not against him, against us or what we were, the cup of the Lord's fury. Jesus saw it in the garden and he he recoiled in his humanity against its awe and its glory and its wrath and intensity. And he recoiled from it in his humanity. But he took the cup and was reconciled to it. So it's not Moses turned the water into blood. But there's no wine of fury for us. The wine of fury was in Jesus' cup and he drank it. So you can go to him and say, the one who drank it for me, the one who makes that wine, the wine of judgment, you who drank it for me, I believe in you, I submit to you, I repent of my sin, I follow you, I love you, I will obey you, I will serve you, I will give my whole self as a bondservant to you. Because in doing so, you are redeemed and you're given the wine of blessing. If a man or a woman says no to that and refuses Jesus Christ, the provision of God, then they will drink the cup of God's wrath and the blood will come. John says in the opening of his gospel here, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The old is giving way to the new. And the new is, it's not Exodus, it's the cross. And the new is that the law-breaking is dealt with and the grace is emphasized. The grace and the truth came through Jesus Christ. He's not against the law, but the grace and the truth upon the law, with the law, coming to you in a gospel call, the grace is emphasized. He says, I've done it. I've done it for you. You need not die. Oh, Israel, why will you die? Come to me. Believe in me and you shall not perish. Grace is emphasized. The old is giving way to the new. It also represents transformation. The water became wine. These vessels and receptacles had this immense transformation that went on within it. And that transformation is something that's a theme in John's gospel, and it's part of the grace you and I must receive as we look at John's gospel. As we've said, our theme is that he is full of grace, of, the, of his fullness you have received, and grace upon grace. Um, in this gospel, uh, he, he, is, he is doing that, transforming. The, the man who's paralyzed in chapter 5, he's transformed just by divine fiat from Christ. His body's transformed, he's completely restored, but his soul was transformed too, and he goes and sins no more. Jesus takes some loaves and fish, and he transforms them by his power. Um, he t- a man's eyes haven't seen since birth, and Jesus transforms these eyes, and at the same time transforms the eyes of his soul, so that he can see the glory of the gospel. Jesus is transforming Chapter 3, right after this, he sits with Nicodemus the theologian and says, and Nicodemus doesn't know he needs transform because he has everything he needs. And Jesus says, you must be born again. That's a transformation. 
born of water and the Spirit, born from above, born by the Holy Spirit, having your soul completely transformed. This action of Christ in his first sign out of the seven, there are at least seven, out of the seven here, each one is transformative. He's, he's showing here at the very start that what every sinner needs is the author and conduit of grace and truth, Jesus himself, the Son of God, coming into their life, into their soul, and transforming it and, and flooding it full of the contents of his covenant blessings. That's what a soul needs to live. That's what eternal life is. They need transformed. And right here at the beginning in his flagship miracle, he, even without, at least we know, speaking a loud audible word, just by his very will and consciousness, he just transforms a thing. He transforms a thing that's impossible to transform. I mean, how can you take water and develop it into a refined wine? The power is amazing. And it's from him. And John's wanting us to know that, that that's what he does to souls and churches and the world if they will submit and receive him. They can't wash themselves or give themselves new birth, but he can do it, and he can do it in a moment. Not over time, in a moment. He is a transformative Christ. You must be born again and become a new creation. He shows that here in the transformation of the water into wine. Have you experienced that transformation, my friend? I'm not saying um, that the, 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 the vessels and their wine are an exact parable of regeneration. That's not the point. The, the point is um, that it's a transformation in this sign that shows us all the transformations that he enacts throughout the rest of the book. He is the one who transforms. Have you, have you been transformed? Have you been born again? Not were you born into a reformed family or did you take membership vows or have you learned a lot? Have you been born again as a man, as a woman, as a child? Have you been born again? We know we are born again because when we used to love sin and disobedience and bad behavior, even as children, we know we have been born again when the desire for sin and the desire to just kind of ignore God and despise what he calls us to do turns into an affection and a desire to obey and follow him and hang on his every word. The person of Christ. It's not just, um, I like learning the Bible as a man or woman, or I like learning the Bible as a child because my parents teach it unto me. It's Christ-centered. We know that we have turned uh, from lostness unto life because the living things that God made us for, love for him, an instinct to run with his law and flow with it, not against it. So when someone says to you, keep the Lord's day in joy and glory and power and in his word, keep it. And you say, that grates against me. Or someone says to you, love your wife, be pure unto her, have no adulterous thoughts. And, and, and you say, I don't need to take that too seriously. And I find a lot of lust in me um, because I'm not satisfied um, with my marriage or whatever. These are desires and enslavements to sin. If someone says to you, let's speak about God and his attributes. And you say, that sounds like a laborious study. 
Someone says to you, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, Messiah, husband, savior, the one full of wisdom, the one who speaks the true water of the true word, the one who calls you to salvation, and your heart says, yes, I I want this. I want to hear about that. I want to listen to that. I want to follow that. I want to read about that. That means a change has occurred in your heart. The enmity with God and his word, law, and gospel is gone. You must be born again. Have you experienced that transformation? It also um, represents the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Not just in that you are transformed, but the fruits of his work. And I think surrounding the concept of joy. And I would place the word power right underneath joy. If joy isn't seated upon the power of the Holy Spirit, that joy is just the world's frivolity and happiness, and it's just got a name that is joy, but it's not true joy. But this is provided by Christ. Um, We sang it in Psalm 63, that we long for God in his temple, that we may praise him with joy and be given fullness of joy and these things. And this is emphasized in Christ's first sign. They have no wine means they have no real joy. They have no real indwelling of the Holy Spirit, his hope and peace. They might have certain hopes for the Messiah to save them from Rome and so on, but they're not all looking for that inward work. And Christ brings it. When the woman, of, the woman of Samaria has no joy, she's looking for it. She's going from relationship to relationship, whosoever fault it is, hers, the man, and looking for some kind of joy and stability in life. And Jesus is representing that in her thirst. She doesn't have it. The man at the pool of Bethesda is miserable. He has no joy. The people of Israel have no joy. The Sanhedrin has no joy. The Pharisees, have no joy, even when they think they do. Judas has no joy. These stone pots aren't joyful things. Messiah must come and release them into the year of liberty, into the jubilation of God, into the celebration of being married to God. If you're one with God and you love him, and he is in you and with you, and you are following him, that's the only time you can have joy. God, after all, is the ultimate joyous being. He's infinitely joyful and satisfied in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we need the joy of the Lord. Paul says, rejoice. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Rejoice always. We don't have that by nature. Even in Christ, sometimes we we lack it in its fullness. We say, I have to make myself rejoice. Rejoice, joy is a response to something. It's not something you whip up. It's a response to something. He is the Lamb of God who dies for their sins and does it in love. He comes to a sinner and says beautiful things like, You are a bride, and I will cleanse you, and I'll be your husband, your companion, savior, and king. You can be in my kingdom. You can receive all the blessings, spiritually and otherwise, of my father. You will be safe and secure. You will live forever. 
you will be one with me. You will hear my wisdom and you'll be in relationship with me and hear me constantly. You will hear terms of affection. You will hear the words of the Song of Solomon come unto you from my own mouth. This is how I love you. You will hear words like, Behold what manner of love the Father bestowed upon us that we be children of God. You hear words like, You were once aliens and not sons, illegitimate, and now you are adopted and say, Abba, Father. These are all beautiful things. We all, adoption is wonderful. Loving, be, loving, loving parents is a, is a beautiful thing. Love between a husband and a wife is a beautiful thing. It brings joy. Feasting is joyful. Peace in your conscience is joyful. Loving what's good, true, and clean is joyful. Being contaminated and on drugs and in gambling and loving what's filthy and unclean will not bring joy. All this joy comes as a response to everything I just listed. And Jesus is representing that here. Messiah has come and the wedding has arrived. And the Spirit will be poured out upon the bride in a new and full way. She'll be, uh, the, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon her in a full way. He says it in the upper room. See how much John records that Jesus mentioned joy in the upper room. I say these things unto you that your joy would be full. You have sorrow now, he says, like a woman in labor. And when the bridegroom is taken from you, but you will rejoice. He promises the joy of his own heart. The joy of Christ will be their joy. Joy is coming because the Holy Spirit is pulled, poured out in efficacy. I can wash myself. I can learn Torah. I can be moral. I can try and get on with my neighbors. I can still be unsatisfied and miserable. But in being reconciled to the Son of God, your bridegroom, there is real marital redemptive joy for what he's done from you. And he frees you from what makes you miserable. Your own sinful inclinations, none of them will make you happy. Wrath and anger and, and outbursts and envies and jealousies and covetousness doesn't make someone happy. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. He might as well have said to him, I have all this. Why am I happy? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all this from my youth. No, in Christ, it doesn't matter if we've kept it all from our youth. What matters is, that we've been united to Christ by faith and repentance. Messiah has come and is bringing joy because he's pouring out the Holy Spirit who brings the fruit of that joy. The vine is Christ, chapter 15, and from Christ grow branches that bring forth the fruit of love and joy. Now that's the power of the Holy Spirit, friend. The Spirit comes in more fullness in the New Covenant age. He's poured out at Pentecost. He's in the church. And he brings, Paul says, love, joy, peace, and hope. Really powerful things. Not nice peace, nice hope. Real God-provided um, peace and hope. These are fruits of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle tells us. What are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, these are provided by him to create a joyous, holy environment in your soul. So I ask you, 
Are you a Christian with joy and peace and hope and holiness in you? The power of the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing unto one another. Is that in you? Is the Spirit of God in you? Do you have proof and marks of that grace within you? Or are are you a hard-to-please legalist who is going around with a copy of the law, but you don't have joy? How can we not have joy when we look at the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit and Christ's love for us as our bridegroom? Joy! Lots of people here in the passage didn't have joy. Christ, in his first great miracle, shows that when he comes into a life, there is a marriage celebration and the wine flows abundantly. Do you have that joy and do you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Lastly, there's this. That's what the sign means. Lastly, there's this. And it's really just a couple of uh, closing comments. There's the plenitude of grace, which is the application of the meaning of this uh, parable, of this uh, event. Um, He makes a lot of wine at this wedding. There's 20 to 30 gallons in each of these large vessels. That's 180 gallons. If your average bottle of wine is 750 mils, the kind you buy, he makes here between six and 900 bottles of top quality wine, the kind of thing you'd need for a wedding, a very big wedding, a feast. He makes that all here. It's the exuberance and provision of Christ that's amazing here. And he always does this. He makes more bread and fish than is needed. He, they drop their net into the Sea of Galilee and it's bursting and the boats are filled. He makes wine for messianic symboled wedding and there's more than enough to go round. This is the grace and mercy, liberty and peace of the Messiah and the great wedding to come that we must draw from now, but it's certainly coming at the end of time. He is full of grace and truth, John says. And in verse 16, chapter 1, of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace now by the end of the series i hope you will learn a greek word we don't usually like to play around with greek in pulpits but it's the word pleroma in english it would be the word plenty and that's the word john uses of his pleroma we have all received and what i just described to you there about that amount of wine that's a pleroma it's plenteous it's full it's overflowing It comes from the very fountain of Christ's own person and his covenant bounty. Plenteous redemption. 
So friend, it's not a little of the Holy Spirit that Christ gives. It's the fullness in measure of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit by prayer and word and meditation and obedience and seeking your beloved husband. If a husband has all this, what wife wouldn't just want to draw from it constantly? The strength and grace and holiness and guidance and leadership that Jesus gives. What wife wouldn't be blessed to draw from the storehouses that are infinite of what Jesus gives? Look at all this wine. The spirit is abundant and the joy he brings, the forgiveness, the holiness, and the strength and refinement to become holy and to serve in your place of work and in your family. It's all there in Christ. And John is telling people at the very start of the gospel that you must draw from it. Of his fullness we have all received. You must do what the servants were told to do here by Jesus. Go and draw from it. Go and draw from it, he told them. And they went and drawed from it, and they were surprised what they found. You draw from it in prayer and worship and word and fellowship and loving your brethren. Just go with your vessel. Stretch it out. Put it in and and draw out and, and see what he gives. Just the abundance of his grace. The abundance of his holiness. Grace upon grace upon grace for the believer. That will all end in at the end of time when we shall stand before him an infinite fountain of divinity and grace and love. Do you think it will ever run out or be diminished for you, friend? Do you think that, that, that you can't go to that fountain today with whatever's in your heart? Do you think he, he's going to run out of forgiveness or he's going to run out of love for you? Do you, do you think his love is too divided between all his saints? You go to him. You are his bride, individual believer. And you go to him and the fullness of a husband's love and grace and power and holiness is there for you. It's an infinite fountain. Stand before it and take from it and be filled with all of the fullness of God. May God grant that it would be so and that these things would truly happen in our spiritual experience. Uh, Let's stand to pray. Everlasting Father, we bless you for your Son, and we pray now we would take these things with us. The rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ, and from it flowed all the water of God. And you rained down manna from heaven to feed them. We now in this new covenant age do not hope for a Christ to come, but one who we can read of, who definitely has come, who came in all the fullness of his gospel glory, all the joy and peace and forgiveness and cleansing of the Holy Spirit is the portion of every Christian if we would but draw from all that you have given, the bounty of your house. We bless you for the wine of God. Uh, We bless you that in other places in this New Testament, you show us that it is an image of the blood of Christ that is provided in redemption. You show it here in John's Gospel uh, as the, the great 
um, outworking of his sacrifice that brings your people into a land of liberty, a land where each shall sit under his vine and under the light and glory of the blessing of God, one in which we feast together because we are happy and joyful at all that has been done, that the royal priesthood, the church of Christ, each member, every precious member, is in that land spiritually and can draw from the vine, the one who is at its center, the bridegroom, at the head of the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the one from whom flows all grace and truth, the very fountain of redemption and joy. Help us then uh, to have these things in our heart. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins. These hard wineskins will break and burst. But the new wine of the gospel must be in new wineskins. And as it dynamically expands and is alive, a symbol of your Holy Spirit, may our very souls and hearts be those wineskins. That the dynamic, active wine of God would be so at work in our souls in the Holy Spirit that we would be able to taste and others taste too, the joy and liberty and holiness and grace of Christ. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.